Good morning. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2 and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6, focusing on the commands to the young women and men in verses 4b through the the end of 4 through verse 6. But we'll read Titus 2, 1 through 6. I want to echo what Bert said um, in terms of the thank you. It was very, very kind and um, unneeded of you to, to bless um, us and my family and with those kind cards, and we're very grateful for them. And I'm working on thank yous <laughs> slowly. All right, Titus 2. Uh, 1 through 6. The word of God says, But as for you, Titus, uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Let's pray. God, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Brenda that you are in control. May we surrender to your reign and your rule in our lives. There's nothing out of your hand, God. Even when you think of the way that the world is right now, um, with war and rumors of war, um, God, we trust that you are in control. You are the only rock that we can cling to. God, may the seriousness of this time Make us serious Christians. May we understand the brevity of life, the seriousness of the gospel call, the call that you give us to surrender, to give up, to give up things that the world says are valuable, things that, the, that we're so tempted by. Things that make us cringe, maybe maybe sting a little bit. God, work your gospel into our hearts. And may we love your word. May we affirm your truth. May we surrender our everything, our everything for the glory of your name. May we defend your word by the way that we live our lives, by the way that we love in the home, and by the way we control our passions. God, may this... May your word work in that way. And help us, God. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the last two weeks, we've been looking at this passage, the the application of sound doctrine, behavior, 
um, the way that we should behave in the church. So last week we looked at older men and older women, and this week we are looking at the young, how Paul, how Paul is moving from the old to the young men and women in the church. They've been given certain areas in life, and, and Paul wants to show how we are, ought to live and display the gospel of Jesus in um, the life of the young. However, in this, Paul, he's helpful in that he gives a reason for doing these behaviors. It's the first one in this passage. There's going to be two more later on, and we'll look at them next week. But he gives a reason, and and the reason he gives is not mundane or normal or in any way something that we should just shove off. He he gives us uh, 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 the highest urgency for why, for why we should behave the way we do. He states that the reason for Christian behavior is at the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. You behave in such a way that the word of God may not, may not be reviled. He, he directs that statement, I believe, immediately to young women, but if you look at the whole context, you look at the commands to young men, and you look at the commands to everyone, this is a command that all of us should take seriously. We should live in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. So often we think about doing the right thing, like obeying God, um, in terms of the benefits for us, right? The way that, that this, if I do this, um, it's going to lead to a flourishing life. And I'm not saying that's not true. If you follow Jesus... Um, many, the way that God has designed the world, um, there are benefits. I'm not denying that. However, Paul's not concerned necessarily right here with the personal benefits that will happen if you follow Jesus. He has one controlling concern. There's one controlling concern. He is concerned with the preservation, the defense of the word of God. The defense of the gospel. Paul is saying in effect, not only is the Christian life a battle, a war, he's saying it is a war and you're in it. You're on the front lines. You're not just on the home front. You're not just in the supply chain. You're on the wall. And you're armed, your life, your life is armed in a way that can either defend the gospel or you can defame, you can denigrate the gospel by the way that you live your life. He puts gravity to our behavior, to, to the way, it adds weight to our behavior. And so to see that, I want to sh- uh, look at three aspects of this passage. First, we would need to see that the Christian life is a defense of the gospel. Christian behavior, it's a part of this war to, to proclaim the gospel, to defend the gospel. And, and then secondly, we're going to look at how. How does Christian behavior defend the gospel? And we'll see that it defends it by being Christ-centered. Our behavior must be centered around the, the, the person and work of Christ. And then we'll see the hope that comes from knowing this isn't normal to me and my flesh. This isn't natural to me and my flesh. This is something I need to be taught and urged to do. It's something I must surrender to. It's not something that we naturally in our flesh want to do. We don't naturally want to surrender to the gospel. So the hope of this is that we will be sober. We need to be sober 
and also be people of clarity and understanding the real nature of what this Christian life is all about. The way our behavior proclaims the message of the gospel. Let's first look at that reason statement. And, and, I, and let me define it a little bit, and then we'll see how the Christian, Christian behavior is the defense of the gospel. So, verse 5 there, he says that the word of God may not be reviled. Do something in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. So that, that word that he, that he says there, it's the message. It's the message God has given to us. And it's most foundationally the cross. The cross that, that God has saved us in Christ. The message that Jesus came and he died for your sins. And he rose and now he's reigning. Demanding allegiance. So it's not simply a f- statement of facts that we know. It's a call to believe and follow. The gospel is not simply for, our, for um, our head, but for our heart and our hands and our feet. Um, the, the, the gospel is described in many different ways, but in Acts 17, here's, a, here's one way that Paul presents the gospel. After he shares, the go, shares of God to the people in Athens who are totally um, unaware, they've never heard of this God before, he says that the time of ignorance... I'll just, it's on the screen. Acts 17, 30 through 31. This is how he describes the, the gospel. The time of ignorance God overlooked. So this time prior um, to the revelation of Christ. But now he commends all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And he's, that's Jesus. He has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by, uh, to all by raising him from the dead. All people called to repent, called to follow, and the proof is in the the pudding of his resurrection. He's raised from the dead. We must surrender our life to him. So it's a call to repent, to look to Jesus as Savior. He's a great Savior, and he's saving you from something. There's there's not a message of neutrality in that. It's not something we we can shove off. You either respond by faith, or it's, a, it's, a, it's something that we reject. Now, let's look at that, that word for revile there. So, so the word of God is the gospel message, and he says that message can be reviled. That's not a common word um, used today. Every time I typed it in my word processor, we wanted to translate it or move it to a, change it to a different word. So I, I'm, I'm going to assume that's not a common word for us to use if Microsoft Word doesn't understand it. Um, it's the, the word used in Greek is actually the same word for blaspheme. Um, it's the verb form. So when, when Jesus is accused of blasphemy in the Gospels, um, believe it or not, Jesus was called a blasphemer. That was one of the accusations against him. It didn't stick. It wasn't right, but he was called a blasphemer. This word was used. It means to slander or to defame. And the thing being defamed is the word of God here. So the object and the slander is not necessarily us. He'll, he'll talk about the impact it has on us later in this section. But the object of the slander, the object of the reviling is the word of God, the gospel. 
can be slandered. The gospel can be defamed if our lives are not in line with the gospel, if the way that we live isn't aligned with it. Let's look at three implications of that. Three implications that that statement, that the word of God may not be reviled, what does that, what does that imply for your life? Number one, the way I, can, I live can slander and defame the gospel. In Titus 2.1, Paul says, teach what accords, what aligns with sound doctrine. And he says this because he knows that Christian behavior always displays what we believe about the gospel. So Paul says, make sure, in verse 1, he says, make sure that your behavior aligns with sound doctrine. Align it under sound doctrine. Align it under the gospel of Jesus Christ because your behavior is saying something. If you've read, or read the news, Robert Menendez, that name's been coming up on Thursday. He's a U.S. senator, and he has been charged with the accusation of, of uh, oh, what did he do? Uh, working as a foreign agent. So he's a U.S. senator. He's been accused of working as a foreign agent. That shouldn't happen. U.S. senators should represent the United States of America, and therefore we are upset. People have the right to be upset. His party is upset, rightfully so. It's a mockery of the U.S. governmental system if one of your senators playing such a leading role, senator alone, is defaming his country by being accused of working for another country. So in a similar but in a more, much more serious way, here in, at the end of verse 5, Paul's describing deadly consequences that happen when a person's behavior is out of step with what they believe, what they represent. He says their behavior can be a defamation of the gospel. How could this happen? We'll, we'll see some of the consequences, but most basically, if I'm not displaying the fruit of the Spirit coming out of my life, no love, no joy, no peace, no patience... I can defame the gospel. I can live a life that says to the world, Jesus really isn't that valuable to me. But I am. I am valuable. Look at me. Worship me. I could live a life that says that. If the word can be reviled and slandered by by my behavior, that means that my behavior can be out of step with the gospel. It can belittle the claim that I believe. So this is a call to be serious. Serious in our behavior. This is a warning. Number two, and this is very closely connected, not only can I revile and defame the gospel, the way I live can cause other people to revile and defame and slander the gospel. And this should be concerning to us. It should be thought that a non-Christian could look at the way you live your life and, and say, why would I follow a God who you say you believe in and he hasn't changed you? You don't even follow him. The gospel's not taking root in your life. Now, this isn't any kind of accusation, right? Because no, Christians are accused of many things today. Christians are accused of of many things, but most of them are inconsistent. They're, 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 they're accused of being hypocrites, or, or, in, or, or, excuse me, 
Christians are accused, but not for real inconsistency or real, in, real hypocrisy. For example, I cannot like Christianity and the teachings of Christianity, but I shouldn't not like Christianity because the way Christians live is a denial of what they believe. I can hate Christianity because I don't like it, I don't like what it says, not because of hypocrisy. For example, people can mock Christian behavior. Um, we can mock that the Bible teaches that we have a, believe in a creator God. We are all created. That, that could be mocked. Or the Bible teaches in monogamous relationships. We can, that can be mocked. But you can't deny that we're obeying the teaching that is in the Bible. Or we can, uh, we can mock that marriage being defined as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. We can mock, and even more than mock, say that's hateful to homosexuality. Or, or the, the, the office of elder, if it's, if it's reserved for, for men only, which the Bible teaches, we could call that chauvin- the, the world could call that chauvinism. Or if, if, if husbands are called, as the Bible says, to lovingly lead their husbands, that could be viewed as a suppression of women by the world. The world always mocks. And the, and the world still mocks the gospel. Don't get me wrong. The, 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 there's a mocking of Jesus saying that he's not God. There's a mocking of the Christ denying how could anything come from a death on a cross. How can anything good come from that? You believe in a crucified man. Or mocking the resurrection. How is it possible for someone to raise from the dead? Have you ever seen someone raised from the dead? Why do you believe in a religion of, of, a, of a savior who is crucified and raised from the dead? Now we can mock, the, that the world can mock that. But he's not talking about that kind of mocking. It's not based on the, that kind of mocking. It's not, it's, it's, it's not for the teachings of Christianity. Paul is talking about the kind of mocking that comes when our faith is undermined by our behavior. And when our behavior denies the power of the gospel. When we say what, that we believe the gospel, but we live out of step with the teachings of the gospel, the world has real grounds to mock and defame the gospel. The world will always mock in one way or another, but it should never mock the transforming power of a life that is surrendered to Jesus and actually obeys him. Can't be mocked. They cannot like it, but they cannot deny the consistency there. I think this is why in the in the Bible, lukewarmness in the church is such a despicable thing. It debases Christianity. Yes, I can look bad in the community as a result of being inconsistent as a Christian. I can lose my reputation. However, the gospel looks ineffective when my life is lukewarm. So we should flee complacency. We should run from bad behaviors because they'll give Christians a reason to mock the gospel and say that the gospel has no power there. Number three... 
um, and this is really kind of summing up the entire thought of the passage, Jesus wants all of me. Jesus wants all of me. The gospel calls me to surrender all of my life to the rule and reign of Christ. How will the word be reviled? Paul says that one way the gospel might be slandered is in the way the gospel is displayed in my life. And so there is no situation, there is no instance where in the Bible Jesus does not expect obedience of all of my life. And I know that seems extreme. And, and in our context it can seem extreme. But there is no description of Christianity in the New Testament where faith in Jesus does not imply a desire to obey him. If it weren't the case, if that were not the case, Paul's statement that the word of God may not be reviled, that statement, it's nonsensical. Because my behavior doesn't matter. Why would the way I live my life have any impact on the gospel's presentation to the world if the gospel didn't call me to a certain type of action? It is because, it is because the gospel calls me to a different life, a surrendered life that Paul can say, your lifestyle shouldn't give reason for the word of God to be reviled. And he's going to go into the real mundane areas of life. He's going to go into the things that we seem, neglig- seem negligible to us. The gospel can't have application in how I handle my home. It does. It does. When I say yes to Jesus, my yes to that cross, to the cross, to the salvation hope, is also a yes with my life, all of my life, have it all. And that's hard. And I hope we can end with some hope for all of us there. So, it's a defense of the gospel. Now let's look at the, w- the way that, that these behaviors display it. How do these behaviors in this passage put the gospel on display? So, um, the critical thing to keep in mind, the critical point is that there's one source there's one source from which all this behavior is possible, and it's, it's a surrendered life to Christ. So all of the challenges, all of the, the hard things that we're going to hear um, are sourced in and, um, and, and made possible by, the gospel, by, by, by Christ. I look to him and him alone, and I can walk forward by faith. If my life is surrendered to Christ, there is no command. There is no command too unbearable that Christ calls me to follow. For example, what if what Jesus calls me to seems humiliating and laughable by the world? If my center, if my focus is first and foremost, may I make Christ known? May I display his work in my life? All of a sudden it's possible. I can surrender everything when I look first to Christ. All those desires, all those pleasure, the pleasures of the world, those things do get, grow dim. Where? In the light of his glory and grace. I look to him first. So Jesus came in humility and he surrendered and he loved his own and he loved them to the bitter end. And he was raised in power and glory and now he calls me, surrender, follow even in the hard things. 
Let's look first at self-control. Self-control defends the gospel by being a display of Christ. It's Christ. So, in other words, Christian behavior, it defends the gospel by being Christ-centered. It points to the worth of Christ. Biblical self-control, it defends the gospel by orienting my life through a gospel lens, through the lens of Jesus. It's different than the way the world defines self-control. And that needs to be very clear. A lot of these terms in verses two, uh, 4 through 6, the world has a flavor of, but it, it's, it's all fall, it all falls short when we, when we look to Jesus and compare it to the, what the world... Because the world has a surface level of self-control, but as soon as... But, but at, the, at, the, at the heart of my self-control in the world is me. I can be self-controlled because I see the benefits that come to me. And that's not biblical self-control. Biblical self-control says, I'm looking to Jesus and I'm viewing all of my desires and all of my passions through the lens of Christ. And, there, and then I obey that in a way that aligns with what Jesus has called me to. In other words, I don't have to, to get the, the, the most out of my self-control. Christ does. In other words, I've got passions and desires inside of me, but in the, in the biblical view of self-control, I don't trust those. I trust what Christ tells me. The world says, those passions and desires are, are good for you, and you can, um, as long as you don't go too overboard, um, you, you'll be okay. Jesus says, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. Self-control is applicable to everyone. It's the one command that is directly impl- uh, 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 commanded or implied to every single person in the church. Old men, implied to old women, commanded to young women, and, and it's the only thing that men are commanded to. It's the only thing that men are commanded to. And so let's focus a little bit on young men. Young men are given this singular command, I think because there's a special need in the hearts of young men to be self-controlled because young men are passionate. Young men are doers. Young men have great ability. And that ability, those passions, those desires could make you go across the country to another land and die on the banks of a river like Jim Elliot did for the sake of the gospel. Or those passions and desires, those same desires, that the lack of controlling them could leave you in your bedroom late at night addicted. We must control and reorient our passions and desires, that's what self-control is, through the lens of Jesus Christ. All I am for his glory. You can bring slander upon the word of God by a a life that's not self-controlled. We want to live a life, young men, and all of us, that says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. I delight to do your will. I'm going to die to my will and my desires. I delight to, your, to do your will. Let's look, for the sake of time here, let's look at these commands for young women. Paul's going to show that, that all of these commands to young women 
are a defense of the gospel. Now, just as a real quick aside, why, why, why are these commands here? Because they're very specific and they're very directed at the home. I think contextually first we can see, if you look back to 1, 10 through 16, the commands to the young women are, are here probably because the home, the family, was one of the areas that the false teachers were upsetting. In verse 11, you can see that. They were, whole families were being upset by false teaching. And Paul is attacking false teaching with sound teaching. And so, because this is an area where it's specifically being influenced, Paul spends a little bit more time going into it. I think that's one reason for the weight and the amount of, of words that he spends. And, and also for, for young women, in that day... And, and still in this day in some extent, this sphere, this home, the home, was, was um, the most common place where a young woman might find herself. Now today, only a little over half of women between in marriageable, marriable age are, are married in the U.S. And so maybe not so common today, but we can see application for all of us, for all young women, and especially application for, for women who are married. And as, so as a little aside, just know that these commands, the, the, only, the only way these commands may have, or any of them may have no application to your life, is if you're single. If you are married, each of them has some application to your life. Another thing to think about, to, to know is, as before we preface, not, none of these commands are based on the worth or the value of your husband or your, or your home life. Your husband could be an unbeliever. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't address it. He just says, this is how we ought to, to live. And that's a wonderfully helpful thing, right? Because it's not, he's not basing it on the circumstance you're, you're placed in. He's saying, here's a way to move forward regardless of whether you're husband's a knucklehead or not he may be the most loving husband and this might be easy or he may be a rude man and unloving but your your obedience doesn't have to be focused on the worth of him it's on it's it's obedience based on eyes that are set on jesus So first, they're to love their husbands and children. Young, young women that love f- for, your, for your husbands and children, if God blesses you with them, it is a defense of the gospel. It points people to Jesus. You can show the fruit of the gospel in your love for your family. So women, if you're blessed with, with um, a husband and children, that domain... That domain, that sphere, is one of the most impactful, most transformational spheres where, where, you, can make, where you can change, um, display the gospel. The way you show love to your husband will have drastic impact, a drastic defense of the gospel. If he's not a believer, if he sees you still loving him, even though he does not love Christ, you will show the worth of Christ. The women of the world look at the flaws of their husband and they may use those as a reason to restrain their love, to limit their love. Christian women don't do that. 
we're called to love. And your love for your children. Think about the next generation that you're raising up. It is a tragedy that our culture minimizes the role of a mother with her children. That probably one of the most, I mean, with the family being one of the things, one of the very few structures God created in this world that we can see the beauty of his, his work and his creation, to see that as lesser than, to see my role as a wife, as something that is, and a mother, as something that is bearing me down and something that is worthless and invaluable because the culture says it's not valuable. Don't look at the, at the role that God gives you as a mother and see it as, as, as without worth. It is one of the most impactful vocations any person can have. You will... And the, and the way that you love your children, um, you're going you're gonna to impact and shape the, what your kids see about God and the world and, and human nature by the way you treat them more than countless teachers will. You have a powerful, powerful role in shaping generations. And you can see that time and time again through the way that mothers and fathers raise up their kids in the Bible and the way that that impacts the future generations. It is a powerful call. It's not small. It's not a small uh, command. It is noble in the Bible. The world might think it has no value. The Bible says, call her blessed. Women are also pure. Their, their purity is a defense of the gospel. And uh, this is a sexual purity that he's speaking of. And, and it is true that when your, your fidelity to your husband, it is a picture showing your husband that you find joy in one source and one source alone, just as you find your joy, your satisfaction in Christ alone. It's a good picture of fidelity to the, to the Lord and it's called upon for, for, for young women. Next, work at home. Your work at home is a defense of the gospel. This word is very difficult to translate. If you look at every... Um, I, I, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven translations, and every one of them is different. Literally, it's a combination of, worm, of, of two Greek words, house and work. House and work. Um, the NRSV has a good rendering, good managers of the household. The idea is that a wife should not neglect her home. Paul is not saying anything that negates the, the images of, of women in, in other areas of the Bible. I don't believe he's doing that in any way. So in other words, don't assume too much of what Paul is saying. I think at the very least you can say that... Um, a wife should not neglect her family in her house. She should not neglect her family in her house. We see many other pictures and displays of, of, of valuable work that women do outside the home. Paul is not, I don't believe, limiting that. But anyway, at the very least, he's, I believe, saying that your hard work in the sphere that you have, and if you're married, it's, it, you have a home with a husband and, and maybe children, if God blesses you with that, let that be a display. Let your hard work in that place that God has given you be a beautiful display of the gospel. Not lazy. 
working hard. Kindness, your demeanor of kindness is a defense of the gospel. It's a wonder of, of, of grace that Jesus has been kind to us. He calls us to surrender, and his, the, that call was from his act of kindness. It comes from a kindness that he showed us. And so we should not, or we should see a demeanor of gloom and bitterness as not aligned with the gospel. That's a more aligned with unthankfulness. So we can show our kindness in our life. And then finally, your treatment of your husbands. Your treatment of your husbands is a defense of the gospel. The last command for the young women, which is so closely connected to verse 5, is to be submissive to their husband. And in, in, in this immediate context, you can see that if I'm, a, if I'm a wife, maybe my husband's not a believer, maybe he is a believer, but if I'm, if I'm a wife and I'm combative with my husband and I'm fighting with him and I'm vying and, and fighting him, the husband is going to look and say, what good is this gospel? She doesn't even listen to what I say. God's design of marriage itself is to be a picture of the worth and value of Christ. And so when a wife submits to her husband, and, uh, which, which means allowing him to lead the home, which should be done in love, she, she, she displays a great trust in the Lord and his design. And just remember, this isn't based on the value of the husband, the worth of the husband. She doesn't have to base her, her desire to listen to her husband, submit to her husband on the value of him, but on the value of Christ. Christ is the one. Those are hard. And they attack our desires at the root. Let's close looking at just very quickly and know that this doesn't come naturally to us. There's a reason that Paul says here that Young women are to be trained by older women, and, and young men are to be urged by Titus. These things do not come naturally to us. And that is where I think hope is found. A life surrendered to Christ doesn't mean that I naturally tend toward doing what is right. I need to be taught to do what is right. And this is maybe comforting to you if you're a young man and you're struggling with sin and you look at your life and you say, I am not a self-controlled young man. There is hope. This needs to be taught. It needs to be fought for. It needs to be surrendered to. And it starts with a surrendered life to, to Jesus Christ. It starts there. I'm going to start his will, his way. That's the best way. Looking to other men being taught by other men, being taught and, and, and urged by the word of God. We need to be taught. And for, for, for women as well, we need to be trained. We need to be, you need to be trained and urged. This doesn't come naturally. It is something that is taught. And, it's, and this is where this happens. In the, in the, in the blessing of the church. 
that God has given. We are blessed with older women who have been there, who can come alongside and show that Jesus is worth it. He is worth it in the home in showing love to your your husband and your kids who sometimes aren't very lovely. This can be taught. It can all be taught and it starts with a surrendered life. So your behavior is always saying something about the gospel. Let it be a strong defense. Let it be a strong defense. Submit to the the teaching of the word of God, the wisdom that God has has given in, in us access to, and let's surrender to the Lord in every sphere, every sphere of life that God gives us. This will be a good defense of the gospel in this church in the, and to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. You say that apart from you, we can do nothing. And, and we agree. I agree. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you that you came and you died and you paid our sin debt. All of our defiance and all of our sin and everything, anything that could separate us from your love, God, you, you took it to the cross and you died. And in you we have life, the best life. May we live in a way that shows surrender to you. For the glory of your name, may we be a light to, the, to, the, to this world and to others that the gospel works. It has fruit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.